0: Hi, I'm TechCrunch Managing Editor Daryl Etherington. This is the TechCrunch Podcast where we cover everything you need to know about the week's top stories in tech from the people who wrote them. This week, I was hosting the TC Sessions crypto event in Miami, so our producer Maggie took the first interview. She talked with Dhammadari Davis about what she calls vibe capitalists and the kind of patterns they're matching. You'll also hear Anita Ramaswamy talk to Binance CEO CZ on FTX, building trust in crypto and revenue opportunities in a truly DeFi world. But first, I'll break down the biggest stories in tech. Of course, drama at Twitter continues. Under Elon Musk, Twitter might be about to lose a coveted Irish corporate status that makes managing GDPR requirements in Europe much easier. Musk also reportedly presented workers with an ultimatum either commit to being overworked or resign. Though he can't actually force that last bit, since it would rob workers of their severance rights. Musk was also clear to employees in his first official emails, in which he detailed his hard line on ending remote work and his priorities when it comes to dealing with the verified spam that resulted from his blue check program. There's more on TechCrunch about the Twitter Elon Musk all over the site. We have plenty of articles and much more to come. Meanwhile, Amazon has begun layoffs that could total up to 10,000 employees in a continuation of a worrying tech trend. In a statement, Amazon placed the blame squarely on macroeconomic trends. More on this from Brian Heater on TechCrunch. Disgraced FTX founder Samuel Bankman-Fried revealed a lot more than he likely intended to in direct messages to a reporter published by Vox this week. He had harsh words for regulators after making a big public show of working closely with them prior to his company's collapse. SPF also said he regretted the recent bankruptcy filing for FTX and its related companies, arguing that it makes it much harder for him to raise his target of $8 billion to try to set things right. More on this on TechCrunch from Alex Wilhelm and Natasha Mascarenas. First up, Maggie talks with Dom about the lack of due diligence done by some VCs.
1: Hey, Dom, thank you so much for coming back on for a second week in a row. Oh, my gosh. Thanks for having me again. Yeah, sure thing. So we were just talking before we started recording, but this week's topic feels kind of like a bummer companion piece to what we had. You talk about last week where there were the VCs for Repro coming on and standing up for something progressive and important. Can you talk to me a bit about what you and your co-byline writer partner, how would you put that? Co-author, my partner in crime, my, I don't know. Perfect. Anyway, you and Ron Miller wrote an article talking about vibe capitalists. So can you tell me a little bit about what you wrote about and what you mean by that?
2: Yeah, I mean, like, really, for me personally, it started over the weekend where I was still watching this SBF thing unfold. And I Mm -hmm. was just like, there are these feelings inside of me where I was like, oh, my gosh, like, here we go again. And seeing people talk about the investors. And I think someone tweeted out to me or something. Oh, yeah, I kept responding to people where I'm like, no due diligence, just vibes, which is how I originally described A16Z's investment into Adam Newman I wrote that Mm -hmm. in an article I was like no due diligence just vibes and then so I started tweeting that a lot this weekend and then someone was like yeah that's what the V in VC stands for didn't you hear and I was like brilliant you are brilliant sir And then so like I log into work Monday and then Ron was talking about like he was noodling on an idea, too. He was like, oh, yeah, look at some of the investors who are kind of admitting that they did not do due diligence. And I was like, oh, that sounds like a vibe capitalist. And so I reached out to Ron and it was like, you know, we should co-buy something. And at first I was like, I don't have anything to say. But then like I just started writing and I was like, I actually have a lot to say because this goes back into literally everything I've been covering throughout this entire year about, you know, these investors are not doing due diligence on these white male founders. It's just vibes. They invest in them because they look like them. They sound like them because they see themselves in them because it is a boys club and it is kept, And it's like that for a reason. And they do like taking risk on things. But but they like taking risks on kind of the people within their circle and in their club. And like, it's a game. And that's kind of like the point of everything. You look at the numbers of women and people of color getting investments, like just the lack of, and then you look at, you know, SoftBank writing off, who was it? It was like, I think Sequoia wrote off 200 million, right? And I was like, that's still more than Black founders, what they got in Q3. And so it's so like in like so much money like even looking at you know this company was worth 32 billion dollars can you name a company worth that much by a black person or like you know that's just not a thing that is just given away so easily to some groups of people and i was like it's it's all vibes and i think that that's kind of what you know people were saying you know, saying like, oh, yeah, well, it's like pattern matching or something like that. And, you know, there is that relationship building that investors use. And I think just calling it vibes is a better way to, you know, encapsulate what that really is, like pattern matching, investing in people who went to your school or who look like you. It's vibes like this
1: is vibes. Yeah, I feel like that is such a a perfect encapsulation of the biases and bigotry that is like is made so so clear in vc because you can just track the money like you can just like so clearly see like who are the types of people who are getting backed and who are not so to back it up just like a little bit you mentioned the catalyst sort of for diving deeper into this where people like vcs talking about how they did not do their due diligence when it came to FTX. Can you talk about a little bit of what you were seeing and why that sparked, I don't know, interest in you? Yeah, well, Ron is the one who pointed it out where
2: I believe one of the CEOs or something of SoftBank was one of the first people to, or not one of the first, but the, the tweet that caught Ron's attention was that tweet where he was like, you know, oh, I should have done better in looking into this person and all these things. Yeah,
1: I actually, I have it pulled up. It's SoftBank COO. And it says, I've been reflecting personally on the whole FTX fiasco. And it taught me one more time that we should never invest because of FOMO. We should always 100% understand what we're investing in. And I totally failed here on both. And then what I loved in the article was you two went on to say, he also invested heavily in WeWork. He's like, I once again learned. And it was like, what were you
2: doing before, sir? No offense, but it's like, what? (laughs) I don't. No, but it's also kind of like, what were all of these investors doing? Because didn't when, what was it? Binance, right? That was the company that was going to buy FTX, right? And when yes. they did when they did due diligence, they almost immediately, not like a few days, right? They pulled back and they were like, mm-hmm. well, something's off here. And I'm like, if it took them that period of time, what have you guys been doing for these past few years? Like, I have no idea.
1: Yeah. And it seems like the due diligence should be such a important like part of their job when they're deciding to give millions and millions of dollars like as I took notes on your article I have a section called sad math, sad and math. It's, it's basically just talking about how women raise just 7.7 7 billion which is just 2.4 percent of the overall investments and then the one that like just really is a gut punch to me is black founders raise a measly one hundred and eighty-seven million, which you compared it to. Adam Newman picked up three hundred and fifty million from A16Z, which I think we talked about when it happened at the time. But this is for a idea that hasn't even started, hasn't even come to fruition. This was just from one investor. So, what do things like this and this sort of like vibe pattern matching tell to Black? Founders or, or founders who are minorities, like what are you hearing from founders when it comes to this? Well, you know,
2: like even to add one more thing to that, I remember when I was really analyzing the pitch decks that Black women had to use to raise And in their, like, even their pre-seed and seed decks, they would have all this, like, so much data. Like, people were saying, like, yeah, we have to use these Series A, Series B pitch decks to raise pre-seed rounds. And just thinking about the due diligence that had to be due there, where a lot of these companies, for example, like black hair care companies, they had to prove that there was even a market for, you know, black hair care. Investors like, do black people buy hair stuff? And it was like, what? Like, yeah. And, like, people having to just prove that these markets exist and the amount of just effort that went into even to get maybe like a million or two million dollars and then hearing Sam is just you know playing video games on a call with Sequoia or whatever and that's like inspirational and it's it's I don't people are just they're disheartened because it's just another blow um kind of the reoccurring narrative that people keep bringing up is that you know this is Gate kept and really closed off and it's still closed off. And so it's kind of talking about how to make your own avenues of wealth creation so that I guess specifically the the Black VC community can be in its own sense self-sustaining and not having to depend on bigger firms or people who do not like giving them money. They don't have to depend on them for money. But obviously that is in itself a nuanced conversation that just goes back to the history of, you know, the racial wealth gap and, talking to the people like the black billionaires now, getting them into being LPs, you know, it's good that some black celebrities are starting to jump in, but then also, you know, getting some of the HBCUs, but then it also goes back to, well, HBCUs need money to give money. Mm -hmm. And also just because you have like a black LP or like a black celebrity who is starting a venture firm, are they still, are they giving money to the black community? And so it's kind of like talking about the next steps in terms of like, how do we do this? Um, and so that's kind of something that I've been following for a bit.
1: Yeah. And, and what are you seeing in terms of those next steps? You know, I, I feel like because of that racial wealth gap and where the money flows in the venture capital ecosystem, but also like you said, like in the collegiate system and all of these places, like the people who hold the power hold the money typically. And so there can't be a completely closed off ecosystem when it comes to this. That'll be successful because eventually they're just won't be the money to go around unless I'm completely incorrect in that. So what are you thinking with these, like, looking forward to these next steps at, like, a possible solution? Yeah,
2: I don't know. I've It's certainly something. I think the more Black people who become wealthy, the more they realize that venture is a viable asset class to enter. That is a start. I've also heard people who are talking to lawmakers about, you know, anti-discriminatory clauses and also... I think one of the senators whose name I forgot, I'm so sorry, he's trying to introduce a bill that would bring more transparency to where these big organizations are giving money. And so mm. it's a start. Things are starting to move. I think that it's good that the more visibility and the more push for transparency in this space, I think it will help people realize where they can start from and see kind of what needs to be done next so that they know what to ask for. and identify who to ask for it from.
1: Yeah, no, that's well put. And you said something last week, you really touched on the fact that like money is politics and venture capitalists, they wield so much power and they really are tastemakers. And last week when we were talking about VCs for repro, which if you haven't read that article or listened to that conversation, you totally should. But basically it's this large group of VCs that are using their power for good and kind of saying, If something goes down when it comes to reproductive rights or like these companies that are fighting for, you know, abortion access or whatever it is, we're all going to go down because we're all in this coalition together. Do you see power in numbers or power in the collective when it comes to this kind of systemic problem?
2: Yes, but it depends on how people utilize it and how they enforce their power in numbers, which I have to start thinking about like the best way to kind of influence decisions. But right now you have to assume that the people at the top don't really care. You can throw as many stones as you want. They don't care. So it's like, what do you Mm -hmm. kind of do? What do you do about that when they're technically like, how do you apply pressure to a system that doesn't care, but then also doesn't have to serve you? And that's, I think, what people are going to have to start figuring out.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I definitely, I've kind of asked you in a couple different ways about what does it look like moving forward or if there is any solution, but it's definitely feels like one of those entrenched systemic problems that is going to like change by erosion over time as younger, more, or at least more progressive people like step into more power. But yeah, I'm I'm really glad you and Ron wrote this and just pulled out these points and made them so clear because when you do look at the numbers and you do look at the actions, like it is so completely clear where the priorities when it comes to these like white male VCs lie. I know. And it's like
2: every day there's a new reminder. Everyone needs to stay strong. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much for reporting on this and also coming on for week two. Who knows what to write next week? Maybe we'll be talking to you again next week. Yes, maybe. Stay tuned. Stay tuned. (laughs) Talk to you later. Bye. Bye.
0: Next, we'll hear a bit of Anita Ramaswamy's talk with the CEO of Binance on building trust in crypto at such a chaotic time.
3: Hi, how are you? It's great to have you. Yes, well, CZ, you have certainly made a lot of headlines this week and just in general. And as soon as this morning, I saw that Binance had suspended deposits of USDC and USDT on Solana. So I just wanted to start there asking you about the news. Why did you make the decision to do that?
4: Um, Actually, I'm not sure of the details on that one. Uh, our team made the decision. I, I would assume there were some issues with Salon Network or something. I don't know the details, actually. I was at a conference in Milken in Abu Dhabi Yeah. Uh, while that happened. So I actually need to ask.
3: Got it. I, I saw you right. met Paris Hilton at the conference. That's, that's really fun. <laughs>
4: yeah. <laughs> I'm, seeing her I'm seeing her later for drinks.
3: <laughs> yeah. But look, all eyes have been on you this week, obviously. And there's been a lot said about the sort of binance and ftx situation ftx is collapsing now and i'm just curious how do you feel this will hurt your business
4: oh yeah Um, it will hurt our business and the industry in multiple ways well and the consumers Um, well first of all many consumers are really hurt financially that money stuck on ftx etc um that's going to really shake uh trust credibility in this industry so now people withdrawing funds from centralized exchanges and the volume will decrease Um, The regulators all around the world will be scrutinizing us very heavily going forward and uh, getting new licenses around the world is going to become much harder. So uh, we'll have a lot more education to do. We do need to increase transparency of our businesses significantly. That itself is actually probably a good thing. So there's going to be like a, a lot of impact. Short term, negative. Long term, I actually think many of them are actually going to be positive.
3: How dependent is your business on trading volumes for revenue?
4: Well, um, that's pretty much 90-something percent of our revenue. So um, it goes up and down with Bitcoin price. Uh, the Bitcoin price is pretty much a industry index. And being a larger player in the industry, we, we follow that pretty closely. Um, but that, we're okay. So we are still run a profitable business today. Um, we're okay. Yeah.
3: You know, the one thing that I can't seem to get out of my head is after watching all of this unfold, I mean, I know you've talked about this before, but there's surely you must have seen some of this coming, right? When you, we made those tweets, I mean, it had such a huge impact. And you've been in the industry for a long time.
4: So some of them, I can do mental mathematics and kind of um, have some, some suspicions, but it's very difficult to not understand what's going on in a different platform, in a different business. Uh, it's only, for me, I was very surprised by the amount of money that they lost and the amount of customer funds they moved and the state of things there. I mean, before this, I can do some mental mathematics, you know, based on our revenue we can uh, and our relative size, and we can estimate their revenue, which is quite small because they charge lower fees. Uh, we know most of their public spendings. Uh, we know how much they spend on, you know, stadium naming rights, referee jerseys, marketing budgets, etc. We also know how much funds they raised, which is not much, to be honest. And then we also know, uh, we kind of have a rough idea. But we never know for sure, because they could be doing something different.
3: Right. I guess, did you know that your words would have such a large impact on the market?
4: Absolutely not. I thought, like, we're just selling some uh, FTT tokens, and it wasn't a huge stash. It was like, you know, 3% of the total supply. And we said, we're going to sell it over, over a period of months. Sure, but, um, but you're highly not... influential
3: in the crypto industry. They're, like, surely you must have seen it coming, right? That all uh, no, of this would actually, set off a
4: firestorm? I, no, actually, honestly, I do not... I do not think it. I do not th- think it. I, I still don't think I have that much influence. I think we had. We were the last straw that broke the camel's back. Uh, it's not a straw that's really, really strong. Um, it's this thing has been building up. Um, people, there's a long chain of events that led to this. People have been losing trust in FTX. Many other people were suspicious of the activities going on. So there was many things that's building up to this thing where we may or may not have been the, the last trigger. It may be something else. To be honest, even if I didn't make that tweet, this whole thing could still happen. So it's not to say that the, the last straw that, you know, have su- have such impact. So it was the buildup of the lack of trust in FTX and people's suspicions. People don't like the way that, you know, the DeFi regulations were proposed by them. There's a whole bunch of stuff that built up to it. I just, ha- I may have happened to be the last thing that poked it.
3: So you were talking earlier about how you are pretty dependent as an exchange on trading revenues. Are you planning on diversifying that at all? I mean, how are you going to prevent against that sort of risk of revenues falling because people
4: don't have confidence in crypto anymore? So if we want to diversify our revenues today, we can quite easily do that. We have quite a large number of portfolio products. Uh, you know, we have CoinMarketCap. When we acquired CoinMarketCap, they were making $3 million US million per month in ad revenues. We removed all ads. So there's no banners, no pop-ups, um, no other projects advertising the ICO on CoinMarketCap. It's a much cleaner experience. We can turn that back on. That will give us $40 million a year. But we don't need to today. Uh, we have trust wallet. Um, we can charge a little fee for transactions. We don't need to. So I think today we're still profitable. We're still very healthy. And um, we want to lower the barrier, the friction for people using crypto tools. We want to get more people to use crypto. So today we don't see the need. Um, but if we do, we have many products. Right now we're single revenue, but we're not single product. We have many products we provide for free. Uh, just for, to increase the speed of adoption. But if we want to monetize those, we could.
3: And is that something you see happening maybe in the short term as some of the pain continues with FTX and there's more fallout?
4: No, I, I, don't, I don't foresee that happening anytime in the short term. I think we're still very healthy financially. We're, we're quite solid. Uh, we have, a, we, we have a fairly large cash reserves, which we use for acquisitions, investments, and helping other projects. On our day-to-day operations, we're still profitable. So um, I, and I don't see any need for turning on other revenue uh, uh, matrices, yeah.
3: Yeah, and, and I do want to talk about reserves um, later, but first, you mentioned this point on regulation. In your opinion, are there any regulations that could have prevented the FTX collapse?
4: Um, I wouldn't say prevent 100%, but it could have reduced the chance of that happening. If we had a stronger audit on reserves, uh, on how, how money is used, how client funds are, are saved, if we have more of those mechanisms, this thing probably could have been prevented or reduced. Um, there's never, it's never a hundred percent. When a guy wants to lie, there's many different ways he could fake the data, give you false information, etc. So I think regulations help, but um, it's never a hundred percent. Is
3: better auditing of reserves something you would recommend regulators start
4: doing and start implementing? Uh, I do. So we do recommend that. But understand that FTX has been gap audited in the US, right? So they somehow fake that and somehow fool the auditors. So um, just in this particular case, I'm not sure. I think those things more audits are really good. But I'm not sure if they will prevent this particular case because we never know how this one guy will, will react to that.
3: So I want to ask about this um, industry recovery fund that you are putting together. Do you know at this point what the size of that is projected to be?
4: With different numbers being, uh, so it's not set in stone, different numbers being thrown around. I've seen numbers around $2 billion, etc. I'm not sure if that's enough or that too, that's too much. We like to take a more flexible approach where, look, let's look at how many projects do need uh, this money and how many good projects we can identify. There may be a lot of projects that, you know, that, that just wants money, but they may not be good enough for, for us to put funds in. We want to help the strong projects that are just, in you know, a cash crunch. So we don't know how many they are uh, completely yet. So we, uh, as time goes on, we need to talk to each of these projects and, and, and find out more. Yeah,
3: I know one of the big considerations with FTX, you know, when they were bailing out all these other crypto exchanges that were having trouble, was that they were sort of doing that in order to cover up some of their own issues. And I'm yeah. curious, watching Binance sort of try to do the same thing and bail out other players in the industry, what is in it for you?
4: When the industry gets bigger, our revenue gets bigger. So we <laughs> want to save. It. We don't want the industry to become smaller. Uh, when ftx did some deals like voyager ftx when we were bidding on voyager we saw all the data ftx owed Voyager 530 million us dollars uh, we were bidding on uh, voyager at the same time but we don't owe voyager any money so we don't owe anybody else in the industry any money so but uh, we still want to save uh, the good players in the industry so that the um, the negative impacts in the industry is minimized uh, consumers are protected and then the consumer confidence returns hopefully the industry will continue to grow
3: Will you be compensated for providing those funds directly in any way?
4: Well, there's different ways to uh, get compensation. We can take equity, we can ask for other things, or uh, we can just say, look, so some projects, for example, if it's a, um, if it's a blockchain development project, it's um, so an open source system, we may just say we, uh, we give grants all the time too. So um, the different, way, different projects may have different situations. And you're considering all of those options at this point for the fund? Yes, absolutely. Yeah.
3: There have been rumors that you are looking into bailing out Genesis. Is that something you are considering at this point?
4: I can't comment on specific deals. I would assume that uh, they would be NDAs in place. Um, But we are looking at a large number of projects in, in the space. Almost every project that you hear about in the news, they would have talked to us.
3: Got it. You know, I think one big question that has come to people's minds is just you know, if this happened to FTX and they fell so far so fast, what's to say that the same couldn't happen to Binance? And, you know, your balance sheet has billions of dollars worth of your own tokens on it as well. So doesn't that make you vulnerable to the same issue that FTX was vulnerable to?
4: Um, That's absolutely a valid concern. I think all of those, and that concern applies to every business, not just in crypto. So I think as consumers, when we're using platforms, especially if you're storing money onto a platform, including a bank, you should ask those questions. So I think those are very valid questions, but in the blockchain world, every, things can be much more transparent. So we're doing that proof of reserves, which using like uh, Merkle tree um, so that people can verify that the assets are included and we have full reserves. So there are many ways to be more transparent. We published our code wallet addresses. Um, we are now working with multiple regulators all around the world on how to do this audit more transparently and more automatically. So uh, we're doing a number of those things, but every user should verify on their own and um, if you don't trade often and you can hold crypto on your own do hold crypto on your own um, but holding crypto on your own also have certain risks but we want to be as transparent as possible um, the risk is always there uh, but i think today Binance, we have 100 percent reserve for user assets operating assets are completely separate we have a large reserve uh for that as well so i think Knock on wood, we're in a very different situation than FTX. So, but just because one company is mismanaged in an industry doesn't mean every other company is mismanaged, but people well, should... Well, that's verify. true,
3: but that, that is the concern, right? If, if the there's the same sort of vulnerability. Yes. I mean, you have talked a lot about transparency in the, the past week or so, and you know, yes, you've released the proof of reserves, but at the end of the day, you're still a private company, you're banned from operating in the UK, you're under investigation in the US from, for money laundering, right? Like, how can uh, users sort of trust you, given all of that?
4: Don't take, don't take no, information no, it. from Rubini Verbatim. Uh, those, are, those, are, those are wrong information. I cleared it up the, today in the Abu Dhabi conference. Uh, we're not, Binance is not banned from operating in the UK. Binance does not have a license to operate in the UK. That's different from being banned. Sure. Um, UK right. as a Commonwealth country it allows reverse solicitation as long as we don't solicit like advertise in UK. If a UK user comes to us, uh, it's fine.
3: But but so, why don't you
4: have the license? So we're the most licensed platform in the world uh, globally. We have 15 licenses globally. Many countries don't haven't issued that many licenses. So that's that's just a state of things uh, today in the in the world. Uh, we are sure. working collaboratively with the FCA. We have ongoing dialogue dialogues with them. We would like to get the license, um, but today uh, we don't we haven 't got it yet, but we 're not banned. Uh, those things are different so uh, don 't take what some uh, the news too verbatimly and you, in the u s Binance u s has forty four state licenses um, t- ten of them are like are granted in the last twelve months, so that basically sh- shows you the status of things in the u s but yeah, sorry, uh, what was your question?
3: Yeah, I, I guess all I'm asking you is given this backdrop of, you know, all of these different sort of maybe issues going on with regulators in certain countries, how can users be certain they can trust you? When you speak about transparency, how do they know that you're actually being transparent?
4: So having a license increases trust, but it's not a hundred percent thing. Many licensed entities Madoff is a licensed fund manager and they lost 10x more than FTX. Um, so having a license increases trust, but it's not guaranteed. Um, trust is still built over time with your actions uh, and with your technology. Uh, we, in this industry, we have many technologies that can uh, allow people to verify on their own. So um, with those technologies uh, being more and more deployed, uh, I think the trust will increase. So this trust is not a like simple one, one flip switch. FTX has many licenses in the world, and guess what? Um, they were lying. Right. So there's many different aspects to trust. But I think as long as we continue to operate ethically, transparently, and always protect our users, our users are pretty smart these days. Like information, social media is pretty, 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 pretty fast and pretty, pretty good. So um, yeah, I think uh, th- there's no magic solution and we just got to earn it over time.
3: What more besides releasing proof of reserves needs to be done for companies to regain trust in crypto? I mean, one thing that comes to mind is even crypto.com had released their proof of reserves, but now there are some questions being raised about the legitimacy of those. I mean, is releasing your proof of reserves, first of all, is that enough? And second of all, is there anything more that needs to be done in your view?
4: Oh, yeah. So, publishing your code wallet addresses is just one first. Uh, actually, it's a one short term, uh, temporary uh, method. It's actually not, a. it definitely doesn't mean like just because you t- publish your uh, tr- uh, code wallet addresses, you're 100% uh, guaranteed. And as we have seen in certain cases, there actually increases the amount of questions uh, when things right. don't really add up. Uh, proof of reserve is not the only one. How secure is your wallet structure, infrastructure? What kind of technologies do you use? Um, your custody solution? Um, how like, it's, There's many, many things that, that, that needs to be done. Um, even how you handle customer disputes. In which, in which situations do you compensate users or not compensate users? All of these things are like topics that needs to be addressed over time. Yeah, so there's many, many topics. But like, you know, a week ago, people were very focused on loans, uh, stable coins, uh, because that's USD, Luna. But now given FTX, now this focus, uh, the latest focus will be on reserves. But there's many other things we do need to focus on. We may or may not be, as an industry, fully focused on them yet. But, you know, people learn from recent events. Um, So that's kind of how we evolve, yeah.
3: All those measures that you just talked about are those things that Binance has already released?
4: Pretty much. I mean, we have a very good, like we operate at scale. So we have, we believe, best practices for all of those things. And we actually would like to share many of them to make them industry standards, uh, like how we manage wallets. And I think we have one of the most secure technologies for managing wallets. And we also manage the largest wallet in the world. So uh, we'd like to share some of those best practices. So there's many things we would like to share, but, you know, we can only do one thing at a time. Today is proof of reserves for the next couple of weeks. We'll get that done and then we'll, we'll move on to the next one.
3: Sure. Yeah. I want to zoom out a little bit and talk about the theme of decentralization. I think a lot of people in the past week have seen decentralized exchanges as a solution to some of the vulnerabilities that FTX was facing I know you have said in the past that you sort of believe both can coexist, but how is that possible?
4: So look, in a decentralized world, if, if, if you and I collaborate together and form a company or form whatever, right? That's centralization. So in, in, a fully, in an extreme fully decentralized world, everyone's on their own. That's the most decentral, decentralized distributed.
3: But, but, but in, that, in that guys, world, do you have a business? Because Binance
4: is a centralized exchange, right? Maybe, maybe not. But that's a hypothetical situation. But people will work together as soon as two people work together, is that centralization or not? That is kind of centralization. And if if a company of 2,000 people works together and they build a platform that many other people like to use, in a free market, there will be some centralization. So decentralization doesn't mean everyone just are completely isolated and everyone's equal, that's communism. Um, That's different from capitalism. That's different from free market. So uh, this decentralization versus centralization concept uh, should be viewed in a balance. Today, we have centralized entities in both the traditional financial world and also in the crypto world. And tomorrow, it's going to be the same thing. Hopefully, over time, more the technology will allow more, more of the tasks to be able to be done by individuals so that we are moving towards decentralization. Today, if you ask everybody in the world who does not have crypto to hold crypto on their own, they're not technically capable of doing that. I think you and I know that already, right? right. So if we just force people to go from banks directly to DeFi, Uh, Most of them will lose their own money because they misplaced it or they lost their device or they don't know how to encrypt it, etc. So that's not the best way to grow the industry. So today, uh, more people will be more comfortable with email address, customer support. Um, So this is why centralized entities still still exist. So I think it will coexist for a while.
3: Do you believe that we'll eventually get to that point where it's a fully decentralized system?
4: Um, So again, I think when we say fully, decentralization is not black and white. So it like, how do you define fully decentralized? I guess all all I'm
3: asking is like, is Binance effectively just sort of an on-ramp for people into crypto? And then once they use the centralized exchange, they end up, you know, moving to a decentralized exchange like
4: a Uniswap or something of the sort. um, I would love for Binance.com to be that role. Um, I I do believe if we look a bit further into the future, 20 years uh, or more, I think uh, a lot more people will be using a lot more decentralized technologies that will be built over the next 20 years. So we would love to be that on-ramp. So and doesn't us, that long term threaten your own business? Uh, no, we, uh, we have Trust Wallet, which is a decentralized wallet. We, have, um, uh, we, have, we, have, we contribute to multiple blockchains. In, there's more, always more opportunities in the future than there were in the past. Just because we have one business that's making money today doesn't mean we'll have to hold on to it forever. Uh, there'll be more it, business it. models that we can make money in the decentralized world too um, that could be even more valuable. So uh, we just, we just, we, but it's just the market for that is small today. So we're not working on that today, but it doesn't mean we can't work out on that tomorrow. So we're not, we're really not afraid of losing a centralized exchange business uh, when the time comes. Um, there'll be many things to do.
3: Yeah. Got it. Yeah. Um, you know, I think one thing that's on everyone's mind is no one saw this, or a lot of people didn't see this FTX collapse coming and you saw it, you almost sort of predicted it a little bit earlier, it seems, right? You were one of the first people to shed light on this issue of their reserves. What parts of the industry do you think are vulnerable right now? I mean, what's next?
4: Well, I think many other exchanges potentially have, may have pr- exposure to FTX going down. Now, FTX going down, um, there's rumors of Genesis having, well, Genesis post withdrawals. So there's rumors of their liquidity issues there. Yeah. And now Gemini may be affected by that. So there's multiple interdependencies in the, in the ecosystem. I think people should look for much more in, uh, independent, well-run, isolated businesses, which you know, Binance.com is, is one of those examples. We don't rely on other third-party uh, loan providers, etc. So, and the loans, uh, loan business is high risk in the industry. So any loan platforms are at high risk. I'm not saying that all of them are going yeah. to have problems. A few may, uh, most of them will be fine. Other than that, I don't, like, there's any industry, especially a new one like, like ours, um, there's many, many risks. Um, even in the internet industry, there's many risks. In the traditional industry, there's many risks. Yeah, I mean, in Lebanon, the banks stop withdrawals, right? So the banks have stopped working, like, a, for a month. Um, same thing, Ukraine. Well, Ukraine's kind of recovered a bit. So yeah, there's many risks in many different places. To be honest, everything's everything has risks. So I won't be able to name all of them. Um, it's just that people should understand that risk is not a black and white thing. And then they should learn to judge the level of risk for themselves because they are more familiar with the things they interact with or use. And that risk management mindset is really, really important. Don't put all your eggs in one basket and always have a backup way. And um, yeah, I can talk about that for, for, for a long time. Yeah, yeah,
3: Well, we've talked a lot about the FTX <clears throat> news, but I want to ask you about something else that Binance is involved in, your global exchange. And I wanted to know what plans, if any, you have in India, because I know you had this deal with WazirX that ended up not working out and there was a lot of water under the bridge there. Are you planning on doing anything else in terms of expanding in India right now?
4: Uh, to be honest, um, today for India, uh, I don't think India is a very crypto-friendly environment due to the, tax, uh, due to the high tax. So if you're going to tax 1.2% per transaction, um, there's not going to be that many transactions. Um, so if, like a user who trades 50 times a day, they, they will lose like 70% of their money. They're not going to be any volume for, high, for like an order book type of exchange. So we don't see we have a viable business in India today. So that's why India is one of the countries I've not visited this year. Um, so just, we just have to wait. Uh, we are uh, in conversations with a number of uh, industry associations, um, people uh, influential people we're trying to to put this logic there. So look, if you charge high tax uh, percentage wise you 're actually going to get less tax overall because you're going to charge like if you charge one point two percent of zero or $1, you get like 0.1 cents. Yeah, yeah. Uh, whereas if you charge 0.01% of $10 billion, you get a lot, get a lot more in taxes. So we're, try, uh, we're trying to get this message across, but you know, uh, tax uh, policies typically take a long time to change. So we're waiting for that policy to change. Binance goes to countries where the uh, regulations are pro-crypto, uh, pro-business. We don't really go to places where it's really we won't have a sustainable business, or we won't have any business, regardless of whether we go or not. So India, unfortunately, given the tax situation, we, we have to wait.
3: There's obviously the, the regulatory issue in India, but I'm wondering if the WazirX deal had anything to do with you pulling out of that
4: market? Uh, WazirX actually less so. Um, you know, WazirX, it was no investment where there was some issues, but, you know, business deals have issues sometimes. So that itself yeah. <laughs> doesn't... That's for sure. That, but, yeah, um, that itself doesn't doesn't cause us to leave an entire market. Where, whereas we, we look at the policies or uh, or regulations in that market today, we just don't think we don't think we have a viable business in India today.
3: One other question about Binance and your business: How are how do you list tokens on your platform? How do you decide what tokens you're going to actually add? I mean, I know yeah. other exchanges have and people have their thoughts and opinions about their process. So.
4: Yeah, yeah. So I wrote an article from four years ago uh, about, uh, if you Google um, Binance CZ listing, uh, CZ's Binance listing tips, um, you you land, you land on, on the blog article. There's a number of things we look at. The number one is how many users does this coin or product, a project has. If a product or project have a larger number of users, then it has value. Um, the more something people uh, uh, is used by people, the more the, the value it has. So that's the number one criteria. But even that one, how do you measure users is tricky. Like you measure daily active addresses. Do you measure TVL? Do you measure Twitter followers? So we use a combination of things because if we publish one metric, people will game it. And in addition to number of users, we look at product market fit, how strong are the teams. There's a number of matrices we look at. We're actually extremely selective. And uh, we list about less than one percent of projects that that apply to us. So uh, we have, we do have a selection process that's relatively public. Yeah, so we, we go by that.
3: There were rumors late last year that you were looking to raise money for the global exchange. Is that still something you're open
4: to taking external investor money? Uh, we considered it. Uh, so. When you run a business, whether to raise money or not, is always a question you ask yourself. Uh, it comes up once um, every month or every quarter or so. We are not we ha- we have our own cash reserve. We're still cash flow positive, so we're not in a cash crunch like we want. We have to raise money, um, but we looked at whether uh, raising money would help us strategically. Um, we wouldn't rule that out, um, but it's something that we are not like. You no, know, it's not like if we don't raise money, we're gonna gonna run out of money in the next six months or so. So we're we're not in that situation. A year ago, it was a better time to raise money. Um, the valuations right. are higher. A little easier. Um, there's more money flowing around. Today is a less interesting time to raise money. Today, we should invest in other projects instead of raising money ourselves. The valuations lower, um, et cetera. But we're not ruling that out. I think as a CEO, as a founder, there's always discussions here and, here and there. Um, but uh, we're not super serious about it, but we're always you know, chatting about it.
3: If you weren't considering raising because you needed capital, then why consider raising at all from external investors?
4: Well, the, many, many investors have a, a lot of uh, connections, um, uh, policy influence, government backing, or um, regulatory influencing, or they could, be, they could own banks uh, and other things. So uh, partnerships, et cetera. So um, there are many advantages in having more people uh, on your cap table in, in addition to just you know, money. Yeah, so I think there's many different potential reasons.
3: My last question for you is about regulation. I think a lot of people in crypto, a lot of leaders say we want more regulatory clarity. We want industry friendly regulations. But at the same time, there has to be balance with protecting against some of the things that we saw unfold with FTX this week, for example. What in your eyes is a you know, smart and helpful regulatory framework for a company like Binance to operate in?
4: Oh, um, there's quite a lot. <laughs> Um, Just on top of my head, um, I would say number one would be classification of crypto. Don't classify it as one asset type. There are certain coins that look like a security. There are certain coins that looks like a commodity. Bitcoin is more like a currency. Um, there's uh, other utility coins. So make sh- so th- the first one is like not mi- not narrowly uh, narrow minded to uh, to sort of uh, define cri- all crypto assets as one uh, asset class, a traditional asset class. Um, that's not ho- what well, that's not what crypto is. Then the second thing is of- obviously to allow exchanges to operate in, in those countries. Um ideally with uh, offerings on spot, futures, earn, pay, Binance pay, payments. The products allow us to offer the product we already have today and maybe more. And then KYC AML is important. Everyone's, almost every single regulator is doing it. And But more on the operations of exchange. What are the ways to store wallet security? How how do we ensure that? Asset proof of reserves, how, how do we do it? Um, that will come. Where the stable coins are allowed or what type of stable coins are allowed? Where the ICOs are allowed? We, of course, prefer ICOs are allowed because we think that's one of the killer apps in, in crypto. Uh, whether, you know, NFTs, meta, uh, metaverse, uh, gamify, what are the parameters in those areas? And taxes, how do we tax transactions, capital gains, corporate income, etc. We want clarity on those things. So there's many. This so we, we would like to have uh, permission to do all of those things uh, with a very strong degree of transparency, disclosure. So I think disclosure is completely fine. Uh, transparency is completely fine. So uh, we like want regulation to uh, compel
3: transparency. You're talking about
4: exactly. Got it. Yeah. So and most importantly, banks to, uh, allow banks to work with crypto exchanges. Uh, many banks are still kind of skeptical. They don't have instructions on whether they should or should not work with crypto exchanges, and they take the conservative route by not working with uh, crypto exchanges, which is actually damaging for them longer term. Uh, they're going to miss out on this new technology for money. Yeah, so uh, there's many things for for a friendly regulatory framework. And we have conversations with, with many regulators all around the world. Uh, things are improving, even today. Yeah.
3: Well, thank you so much, CZ, for your time. I think that's all we have. I could ask you questions all day, so appreciate you sitting down with me. Thanks. All right.
4: Thank you so much, Anita. Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: That's it for this week. Thanks for joining us. And be sure to check out all the other TC podcasts, including Found, Equity, Chain Reaction, and the TechCrunch Live podcast.
1: Hey everyone, it's producer Maggie. I just wanted to hop on before we say goodbye to let you know that we will not be posting a new episode next week. It is Thanksgiving in the U.S., so if you're in the U.S., I hope you have a good holiday. And if you're not in the U.S., I hope you just have a lovely week. And we will see you week after next.
0: The TechCrunch podcast is hosted by myself, managing editor Daryl Etherington. We're produced by Maggie Stamitz with editing by Kel Keller. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator, Alyssa Stringer leads audience development, and Henry Pickovit manages TechCrunch's audio products.